My failure came in three parts. Actually, I was made redundant, not once, not twice, but three times. And so when we look at what's happening in the tech space at the moment, it's difficult to define it as a failure because I think a failure is something that you do and it goes wrong. It's hard to think that being made redundant mm. or or being, what's the other word for redundancy? Using yeah, layoffs. layoffs. Exactly. It's not necessarily a failure because it's not something that the individual has a choice about, but it is. it mm. feels like a failure. It feels personal. It feels yeah. like you are literally superfluous to requirements. You are redundant, but nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, layoffs are not about the person or they shouldn't be. They are purely about the company not making as much money as it wants to make and treating people as a casualty. So the great mistake, if you think about it, was actually the first time I was made redundant. It was during the initial global crisis with the financial insecurities where engineering and property prices were a casualty. I was working for a consulting firm of engineers. And of course, they couldn't keep marketing if they just didn't have enough people actually providing the work to do the engineering. And the mistake I made was feeling like it was my fault. And I hunkered down and I felt sorry for myself and I took some time off. But I didn't start looking for a job immediately. I went away and licked my wounds. And so by the time it happened to me again, I knew it was coming. And I'd already started looking for another job. And when they made me redundant, I simply treated it as a holiday between that job and the next job. And by the third time I was made redundant, I saw the writing on the wall long before it came. And in fact, instead of waiting to have the axe fall on my head, I took the decision and I volunteered for redundancy. And that three-month period where I was fortunate enough to be able to have some income covering my life so I could make big decisions and think about what was happening next. It was the opportunity I needed to start Verbalistics, to take control of my destiny, mm. to become the entrepreneur that I think I always meant to be. Well, first of all, welcome to Supercharged with Digital Marketer, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss everything related to entrepreneurship and finding success in business online. And I'm your host, Kazuki, and also the co-founder of Marketer. In today's episode, we actually have a super amazing guest all the way from Australia. Let me introduce you to Gina. She just isn't just an inspirational TEDx and keynote speaker. She's also a storyteller and a B2B marketing leader as well as she's a non-executive director who sits on the boards of the Chartered Institute of Marketing and Project Displaced. She's actually an author, author as well, which is really cool. She written in a book called The Secret Army, The Leadership, Marketing, and the Power of People, which she's going to kind of talk about a little bit during our podcast as well. And she's one of those rare communicators who can absorb huge amounts of information to distill into meaningful communication that makes positive change. Happen. So I'm super excited to have her on board today. And in today's discussion, we're going to be talking about from failure to success and why it's so important to have the grit to keep you going and to find you the success. So first of all, welcome to our podcast. I'm Gina. Super happy to have you. And I know we're going to have 
a lot of conversation to, to go through. So why don't you introduce to, to the wider audiences what you do, who you are, so we can get to know you a little bit more. Thank you so much for having me, awesome. Kazuki. It is a pleasure to speak to you and your audience locally and around the world. So I'm Gina Ballerin, Gina Ballerina. Actually, dancing was potentially one of my career options as a teenager. And instead, I married someone called Ballerin, so I still get to be a ballerina, even though I do words for a living. <sighs> so I run a marketing consultancy called Verbalistics, and it comes out of many years spent in marketing as a marketing director, as a content marketer, as someone who truly deeply wants to understand what is going on in the minds of not just our company, but our customers, and more importantly, our customers' customers so that we can create marketing that makes sense. So what do I do on a daily basis? You'll find me tinkering with marketing campaigns and tinkering with messaging and looking at the strategy of how we get the right messages out using the right tactics to the right audience. But when I'm not doing that, I'm also standing on a stage and sharing a message. And this message is actually about inspiring marketers to be proud of what they do. And part of that means being brave enough to change the status quo, to challenge the status quo if we have to, because we are bastions of the brand, but more importantly, we understand what our customers need. And it is our responsibility to do marketing that we feel proud of. And that's something that I'm really champion. Proud marketers doing marketing they're proud of. Amazing. Like as a, as a marketer, fellow marketers as well, it's, it's kind of nice to have the powerful words about marketing because I know marketing, it can be a, such a hard effort as well. And then a lot of people don't get actually appreciated for doing marketing. So it's actually quite cool that you mentioned that. Well, let's just dive into the first initial questions, which is, can you tell us about your specific failure you faced in your career and how you overcome it? My failure came in three parts. Actually, I was made redundant, not once, not twice, but three times. And so when we look at what's happening in the tech space at the moment, it's difficult to define it as a failure because I think a failure is something that you do and it goes wrong. It's hard to think that being made redundant mm. or, or being, what's the other word for redundancy? Using yeah, layoffs. layoffs. Exactly. It's not necessarily a failure because it's not something that the individual has a choice about, but it is, it mm. feels like a failure. It feels personal. It feels yeah. like you are literally superfluous to requirements. You are redundant but nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, layoffs are not about the person or they shouldn't be. They are purely about the company not making as much money as it wants to make and treating people as a casualty. So the great mistake, if you think about it, was actually the first time I was made redundant. It was during the initial global crisis with the financial insecurities where engineering and property prices were a casualty. I was working for a consulting firm of engineers. And of course, they couldn't keep marketing if they just didn't have enough people actually providing the work to do the engineering. And the mistake I made was feeling like it was my fault. And I hunkered down and I felt sorry for myself and I took some time off. But I didn't start looking for a job immediately. I went away and licked my wounds. And so by the time it happened to me again, I knew it was coming and I'd already started looking for another job. And when they made me redundant, I simply treated it as a holiday between that job and the next job. And by the third time I was made redundant, I saw the writing on the wall long before it came. And in fact, instead of waiting 
to have the axe fall on my head. I took the decision and I volunteered for redundancy. And that three-month period where I was fortunate enough to be able to have some income covering my life so I could make big decisions and think about what was happening next, it was the opportunity I needed to start Verbalistics, to take control of my destiny, Mm -hmm. to become the entrepreneur that I think I always meant to be. And that was what started my journey to being able to help other people through coaching, through writing, through deeply understanding what it means to communicate and put those words out, words out in a way that makes change happen, that helps people feel proud. That's interesting. Well, I can totally relate, especially last year in September, I got laid off actually from tech company too. And I know for sure that it's not easy. And I know for sure that you probably felt that way when, you know, you felt like it's not only just a failure, but you just lost and everything. And as you mentioned before, when you got redundant, I'm pretty sure like, I know the people who's listening to this podcast, like some of them actually got recently laid off because I actually look at the stats the other day. It's about 200,000 people, including last year. And then this year so far in the US alone got laid off. So that's a quite a huge number, to be honest. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, what is the, those failures kind of taught you, especially compared to when we look at, you know, ourselves, when we get redundant for being laid off. And I know there's so many things that we have in our hearts that kind of confuse where we should get, be going. But I'm kind of curious, like, through your experiences of redundant, everything, what you just mentioned, how you overcame it and everything. What is the message that you can kind of share with those people who's just recently laid off or people who's going through a tough times right now looking for a job? When it comes to redundancy or any end of a job, it's important to realize that you are actually going to go through a grief period. And if you think about the Kubler-Ross grief model, it's important to realize there will be highs and there will be lows and you will be angry and you will be resentful and you will be despondent. And you will also find moments of optimism and moments of despair. It's all perfectly normal. You're not alone. You're not Mm -hmm. the only person who's going through this journey. I think the third time I was made redundant, I actually reached out to all of the other people on the redundancy list and said, we're in this together. It's not us versus them. Mm -hmm. It is about us taking control of our destiny, moving into a world where we feel more comfortable. Now, not everyone is fortunate that if they're in the position of having been made redundant, that they have a nest egg or they have some money that they've been paid out that allows them to fall back on. Some people have to get right back in there and do whatever it is. I will provide two pieces of advice. Mm. First is do whatever work you can. Volunteer if you have to. The worst thing you can do is sit at home feeling sorry for, for yourself. The best thing you can do is try and find an opportunity that gives you some kind of delight, joy, a feeling of meaning or purpose. For some people, that's volunteering. Often it comes by helping others. You can sometimes realize that there are people who are far worse off than you are. And by helping others, you actually get a sense of purpose and a sense of achievement, even if you don't have a job that's occupying your time. Another tip about redundancy that I think is really important is this. When you're redundant, it doesn't mean that you are worthless. 
Your work is mm. not your worth. Who you are transcends the mere things that you're paid to do. Sometimes being made redundant is an opportunity to take those things mm. that you are missing in your life and to turn them into something that gives you joy. You might actually find that there was only an element of that job that really gave you joy. Find another job that will give you that same joy. Use this as an opportunity to explore who you are and what value you add to the world. Interesting. I know you mentioned finding a purpose and finding joy. And would you say that as like a part of a grit? I think that the definition of grit, according to the book, is actually about finding something that you enjoy and are dedicated to pursuing for an extended period of time. So yes, definitely it's hard to be gritty if you don't get joy from something. And this is an important topic. Grit is not only about our ability to stick with something. And I think we've confused the definition of grit with the ability to be resilient. They are two different things. Grit is actually about taking the thing that makes you come alive and refining that over time until you are so good at it that you're comfortable calling yourself an expert. What I like about grit, and I hadn't realized this until I read the book recently again after many years, is that grit is not about doing something once and letting go of it. And because I'm the kind of person who likes to innovate, and who likes to get involved in lots of different projects, solve a problem, move on to solve the next problem. When I read the book's question about the two dimensions of grit, one is your ability to stick at it, and the other is your interest and determination to make something happen. I hadn't realized that while I do a lot of interesting things, I don't stick with them for a long period of time because I've solved a problem and I moved on. That means I'm not gritty. This, this rocks my world. What do you mean I'm not gritty? I'm so good at things. I'm so determined to make them happen. But it forced me to think about what are the things that I would do in my life if no one asked me to. And that is when I realized I've kind of been doing that my whole career. And that comes down to understanding deep, complex things, communicating them in a way that people can understand and inspiring them to make change. Now, in marketing, we are hopefully able to understand what we're selling. We are hopefully able to help people understand what problem we're solving. And then we're hopefully able to communicate it in a way that helps people change their lives. This is kind of what marketing does when you think about it. But what great storytelling mm. does too is it's able to harness those three dimensions. Because if you think about it, at the end of a story, you want to be changed. You want to be different to the person you were at the beginning of the story. So great storytellers are in fact, gritty if they're able to stick to that cause of understanding what they want to do, helping make that change happen and inspiring people to go out in the world and do that. And I think finally, having realized that definition of grit and how I am gritty, it also helped me define my meaning and purpose in life and why I get so excited about marketing. Amazing. Well, it's amazing that you mentioned about the book Grit because it's it's a, such an amazing book that it tells about why you're passionate about, why you do things that you do, that you love, and why is it so important and everything. But I know you mentioned a little bit of your setbacks and challenges that you've kind of gone through, which kind of brings me to the second question. And I know we leapfrog a little bit, 
from the questions that we had. But I think you mentioned the really good informations where you talk about your redundancy, but you also talk about what is me, what does it mean by grit? So my next question is, how did you develop the grit and determination to actually keep going despite all the challenges and setbacks that you actually gone through to this day? And what is the grit for you personally that actually keeps you motivated and keep going in any challenges and obstacles that you face? I think grit is deeply personal. Resilience is something that every single person on this podcast, and I would argue around the world, has had to deal with over these extraordinary times that we've been through recently. Resilience is the ability to be punched time and time again and to get back up again. Grit is the ability to channel that into something bigger, something more, something with purpose. So in answer to your question, what is it that gave me grit? Well, ironically, resilient people are often those who suffered challenges at an early age or setbacks, who learned that they had to rely on themselves or who learned that Mm -hmm. the challenges that have come in their lives are worth overcoming. It is too easy to bow down and let the waves of circumstance roll you over and into deep and to hide your head and just want to give up. But that's easy. I'm the kind of person who likes challenges and I'm not satisfied by doing something that's easy, which means if someone tells me you should just lie down and be beaten, I will say no. I will rise up, I will challenge, (laughs) and I will make sure that whatever it is that I'm trying to achieve will be done. Now, I recognize this characteristic in a lot of entrepreneurs. It is our ability to be a little bit contrary that helps us thrive. Entrepreneurs are extremely good at surviving despite the odds. In fact, sometimes Mm. entrepreneurs need to have a challenge in order to be successful. They need to be fired up by something that they perceive as either an injustice or simply a problem or a challenge in order to be able to make the world a better place somehow. Now, don't get me wrong, not all entrepreneurs are motivated to make the world a better place, but I do believe that they're driven by something. So what drives me? Humans. I am inherently motivated to motivate others. Now, I've chosen a career Mm. path where I motivate people through words. But I also understand that motivation has everything to do with words. If someone can come away from a conversation with me or with you or with anyone listening and feel better about themselves, feel empowered somehow, then that makes the world a better place, person by person, conversation by conversation. And I'm fortunate that I am now able to reach out to others to help me do the same when challenges are facing me. But I think that's partly because I've put so much time and effort into helping other people to change their mindset, to help them move forward, that I am also able to recognize when I need that support. So there's a message here as well. Entrepreneurs, find your grit, keep going with that grit, but also don't be afraid to ask for help. Wow. Wow. I'm actually like quite in awe right now. Like everything that you mentioned, is, it is really true. Like words has something to do with not only just the power, but really change people's hearts and their minds. So it's a really, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've actually lost in words. Like it's, it's crazy. Like it's, it's that 
I guess it's it's the pow- part of the power of storytelling, right? Absolutely. And the thing about storytelling is that you have to understand who your audience is, but also what you want to achieve and what their current status quo is. Now, marketing is going through a challenging time right now. With ChatGPT and a whole bunch of other AI-automated content producers, mm. the marketers who simply did a basic job can be replaced by bots. Honest to God, they can. Doesn't mean the bots are going to get it right, but unfortunately, poor marketing can be replaced by artificial intelligence. Great marketing cannot be replaced by artificial intelligence because human intelligence taps into something deeper. Power of human intelligence is our ability to understand context, which bots are still not very good at, but also our ability to understand emotions, which arguably bots will never be very good at. That ability to understand emotions and to channel that into words is what transcends human beings. It's what makes great speakers great. It is what leaves you coming away from any story, whether that's a television program you watched, a podcast you've listened to, or a speech that you've been invited to attend. If the speaker is almost channeling something, some kind of energy, some kind of wisdom, some kind of calm, they can pass that on to their audience. Great speakers Mm. help audiences make change happen in their heads and in their hearts before they even leave that room. Change doesn't happen on its own. Change only happens when people are motivated to make that change happen. I've seen so many change management programs fail because organizations forget that they're dealing with humans. We are inherently messy. We are inherently emotional. We are inherently motivated or demotivated. If we want to make change happen, the only way to make it stick, the only way to make people want to change is to change the way they feel about that change. I think most marketers forget. Mm. We forget that we actually have a change role to make play as well as just a communications role. Wow. Is that, is that actually how you incorporate storytelling into work with like verbalities? Sorry, verbalistics. It My is apologies. actually how I incorporate storytelling with verbalistics. I think of marketing as more than a series of tactics. When marketing has meaning, what happens is that you're able to understand who am I talking to? What problems am I trying to solve? And why should they give a damn? And then what happens is the nature of the tactics that you use flow out logically from that. We've all thought about our target audiences and we've all thought about how we can try to communicate them. Many people may have done persona research. As I talk about in The Secret Army, Leadership, Marketing, and Power of People, though, it doesn't help if you only understand your persona at a surface level. You have to understand what Mm. drives your audience, what makes them want to change or need to change. The Challenger Sale also talks about the need to change as being the need for same to be different to the need for change. You will only change when it's more important to change than it is to remain the same. Often Mm. businesses think that they can just share marketing and then eventually someone will take their product. They won't. They will only change if it is painful to remain the same. So at Verbalistics, 
what we do is we try to understand what is that need for change? Why would people bother to do something different? And then we collect customer stories and weave those seamlessly through the narrative. Because what customer stories do is they provide evidence. Customer stories Mm. give trust. Customer stories cut through the noise. Customer stories are deeply authentic. Interesting. Absolutely. I mean, like that's something that AI definitely cannot replace either because it's something that only human has the capabilities to do it. And then that's, I guess that could be a differentiator between AI and human beings is actually not only just emotional perspective, but we have the ability to understand what, why, how, who, which is fundamentals for not only the understanding who the customers are in a marketing perspective, but also to how do we give value to those customers out there. And so, which is really cool that you mentioned that. And to be honest, I'm a big fan of your Novivalistics. It's really amazing what you guys do, like, especially on the B2B space. I have to be honest, they are pretty hard than B2C. (laughs) Well, I would say that B2C is pretty hard too, because I'm a B2B marketer at heart. I think the difference between B2B and B2C is that you have to work really hard at B2B to get things right because you don't have that many opportunities to get things wrong. Now, in B2C marketing, there are many, many potential customers. You're playing a numbers game. In B2B marketing, mm. there are fewer customers, but they make decisions with a longer time frame and they involve more people and they have more decision making. You only get one shot at B2B marketing. Now, that's not necessarily true because the customer may purchase the thing that you've sold them and then get sick of what they've got and move to you over periods of time. But it's not like you're making that decision every five minutes. If you're selling a Coca-Cola to a customer, one day they might buy Coke, one day they might buy Pepsi, one day they might buy a bottle of water. It's split second decisions. Their life is not going to be irrevocably damaged or improved by buying Coke, water or Pepsi. When you're talking about a million dollar decision for purchasing a piece of software or a new piece of equipment, something really big, there's a vulnerability that people have during that process. And B2B decision-making is often thought to be rational. Procurement teams try to justify and itemize and document every single part of the process so that it is not emotional. The fact is Mm. that humans make emotional decisions, whether you're buying a Coca-Cola or a million-dollar piece of equipment. Great B2B marketers are able to make sure that they have the information that people need to justify their emotional decision-making. Because that's what the art of B2B marketing is about, really. It is about providing the rationality that allows people to justify their emotional decision-making. And that's a very tricky situation because we talk about customer storytelling, we talk about the value of case studies, customer quotes, webinars, podcasts, white papers, anything where you can put a customer voice out in front of your audience. And it's incredibly hard to justify the return on investment on customer Mm money. Incredibly hard. We're getting better at it these days because marketing is better at tracking the journey of customers and at tracking the touch points that they've been involved in. 
But how could you justify if you've got a webinar about the product features and you've also got a webinar from a delighted customer, if both of those are part of the journey, how can you say that one converted and the other didn't? That's why it's so hard for mm-hmm. marketers to invest in customer storytelling. And over the many years that I've been involved in this project, I can simply say, if you as a consumer go to a site and one of those sites, and they're identical in every other way, but one of those sites has stories of happy customers and the other doesn't, which one do you trust more? Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a very good question, actually. But I would say data, but <laughs> but obviously, like this definitely depends on customers. The customer, especially who to trust, it's a bit tricky, especially nowadays. Like everyone's really short span of attention, um, thanks to TikTok and all the short form contents and everything. And then even the B two B space, like all the new millennials, the Gen Z, like they're coming into the corporate world, which changes the the attitudes and also the customer journey as well. So it's really hard to to make a judgment on on that, for sure. Well, well that's my opinion. I agree least. with you. I think technology has played a really important role in marketing and, and sales and marketing because we can't think of marketing as being an isolated discipline. I once heard marketing being described as the weapons that salespeople used in order to fight war. Now, we don't really want to think of fighting a war against our customers, but the fact of the matter is that people use information as, as part of their decision-making journey. So you talk about data. The value of data and the value of stories <clears throat> are both critical. And if you think about people, people either are convinced by data or they're convinced by stories, but often they're convinced even more by a combination of the two. Great customer stories are able to provide data and evidence of their before state and their after state. What was life before they had that problem or solution solved by the product or service? What was life like after they had this? And it is that difference, which is the, one of the fundamental tools of a storyteller. You're able to show where the hero was at the beginning of the journey. You're able to show where the hero was at the end of the journey. What also makes great customer storytelling is the ability to help people through that journey. If you can help them understand that it wasn't all smooth sailing, you didn't just randomly jump on a boat and arrive at your destination and we're all free. It doesn't work like that in the real world. In the real world, you buy a solution and you have challenges with implementing it. You you get it right and then you have challenges with rolling it out and you get it right and then you have blah, 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 right? It's a journey. The important thing in telling stories is actually to be able to say, it wasn't all perfect, but here's what we did in order to overcome it. And I think more and more customer storytelling should involve not just the customer stories and their delight and their triumph and their joy and their pride, as well as the data, the statistics, the evidence, the cost savings, the return on investment. What it also needs to be able to do is give people a pathway so that they have confidence that when they make that commitment to whatever it is that they're going to purchase, they will end up Mm. successful at the end of that journey. And I think marketers often underestimate the importance of mapping out that journey for a prospective customer because marketers have historically looked at the sales and marketing funnel as a finite, defined endpoint. If marketers' job is only to bring people into the funnel, their job is not to drop them out the bottom. That's sales. But marketers now own the entire funnel 
whether they want to or not. They own every single part of marketing that a customer is or prospective customer is touched by. That is a very big ask. Now, not all marketers do that. But if we think about the customer journey as part of our responsibility or the opportunity for marketing to touch, it becomes a really exciting place to be. And it's even more exciting Mm. if you think about the rest of the team as your secret army. You don't have to win the customer battle on your own. Marketers exist with salespeople, with product people, with anyone who creates or distributes or amplifies or reaches the customer or solves their problems or services them in some way, shape or form. Just as we can all make a difference in that customer's life, so too can we all pull stories out of the customer's experience from any part of the organization. That's something that marketers often forget. We're not alone. We might be the only ones responsible for marketing, but it doesn't mean that we're the only people who can influence and gather information from our customers and prospective customers to help them do what they do better. Interesting. Interesting. Especially like you mentioned a really cool topic, which is custom experience. And I think that's something that a lot of people, actually a lot of marketers actually is they forget. Like I used to be customer success person too. So for us, it was all about custom experience. And I, I totally remember like when it comes to B2B clients, like it's all about how they get the experiences so they can continue to, to be our customers for throughout the months. So we call it the, in a SaaS word, we call it the recurring revenue or another word, retention. And, and I think there's something that marketers also need to know is how do we retain those customers and how do we retain those customers learning from our failures of the companies or the marketers so we can continue to nurture on a different stage of the customer journey, which is something that you mentioned really cool, by the way. And I love that, which kind of makes me curious also, which is comes to kind of like, you know, sharing tips about creating a compelling content that really resonates with the B2B audiences. And I know customer experience is probably, probably one of them, like, I think I would say, but I know like right now it's all about creators economy, contents, contents, contents. At the same time, attention, attention, attention. And that also comes with customer experience too. So everything that you kind of mentioned before, how does, how does, how do it is important to, when it comes to creating compelling content that really resonates with the B2B audiences in that regards? It's difficult to answer a question like this because there's a lot involved. Let me strip it down and see if I can summarize the question. It is basically about how do you attract, retain, and engage customers in a B2B context using storytelling? Is that about right? Okay. Absolutely. That sounds pretty perfect. Marketing's job is to attract customers. Often to retain customers, very rarely to continue relationships with customers or to expand. That's sometimes part of marketing in a B2B context, not always. What we have to understand about marketing and customer acquisition, retention, and delight is that customers are human. We tend to see customers as a brand, a name, a, an organization, and forget that an organization is made up of one, two, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million employees. 
every single one of those employees has a heart and a mind, a brain and a soul. Every single one of those can be impacted at any point in time. A lot of organizations put rules, structures and procedures in place in order to make sure that employees are behaving in a certain way. It's part of your culture code. It's part of your job description. It's why people have requirements in a job. Now, what does this have to do with marketing? If we think about customers as being humans, it means that we know that their emotions will vary, their determination will vary, their ability to do their job will vary over time. It is marketing's responsibility to entice them enough to convince them to purchase. It may be marketing's responsibility to make sure that they're getting what they thought they were going to get and help serve them moving forward. But there is an element of delight that I think you've touched on with the customer experience point that is really hard for marketers to influence. HubSpot talks about a flywheel and they put their customer mm. at the center of that flywheel. And what happens with a flywheel is they use marketing as part of that, they use sales as part of that, and they use customer experience as part of that. What happens with a flywheel is if you think about it, if you Think about it like a like a like a, a bicycle wheel. Like the faster you spin the bicycle, the more emphasis there is at the center. The tighter things pull together, and therefore the faster things can spin. It almost becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Organizations that are doing exceptionally well these days are organizations that understand the customer journey from the beginning to the end, and the best possible people to tell customer stories for, or the ones that are the greatest and the easiest to tell customer stories for, are those which focus at every single stage of the customer journey. If you promise them something, you deliver what you said you were promising, it's so easy to say, hey, did you like what we provided? Are you still happy? Are you getting what, we, what you thought you'd purchase? Hopefully the answer is yes. Then it means that marketers can come in, swoop up some wonderful case study and testimonials and put it back in at the beginning of the journey. I see a lot of SaaS customers doing this very well because they build the journey out yeah. throughout the whole experience. I see it going incredibly badly in organizations that have lost their way, especially organizations which focus so much on cost cutting that they forget about all of the people they've hired to improve the customer experience or to help them through that journey. And I get incredibly frustrated when marketers are, are plugged into different part of the organization to somehow solve the problems that are not created by marketing. Mm -hmm. One of the best things that marketers can do is to step out of their day job and to have conversations with lots of other people around the organization to identify where those pain points are but also to raise those pain points to the people whose responsibility it is to address those pain points. If marketers can say, hey, here's a thing our customers are not happy about, and hey, you, isn't this your responsibility to fix? Everyone wins. But it's not easy. Being the person who identifies the problem and says, and please, can we fix this, sir? Is hard. No one wants to know they're not doing a good job. But if we don't do it, everyone fails. If no one is saying that mm. the customer is unhappy and no one is doing anything to try and address the reasons the customer is unhappy, you just lose the customer. 
I've heard it costs five times more to acquire a customer than to retain one. So why are we mm, not spending yeah, any money on retaining customers? Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to hear that. It used to be like, I think I read the stats and it was like five, probably like five times better, more, more profitable if you retain the customer rather than trying to acquire yeah. a new one. Just crazy. It's just crazy. Like, if you think about it, like if you don't retain those customers, actually losing profit too, absolutely. if you think about it that way. Wow. And I know like we talked a really interesting topic, like from grit marketing to customer experience and everything. I like to kind of mix all together and I'll ask you a question because I think grid is going to play an important role in marketing too, and especially customer experience. So I'm curious on the personal opinion of yours. How does grit plays an important role, especially in marketing and customer experience? It's beautiful that you ask that question because it is poignant and it wraps everything up and it tells a story in itself. Grit is important in marketing. Because marketers often see things that other people in the organization don't. They are often exposed to challenges at the coalface before anyone else realizes they are challenges. Getting a marketing campaign out is hard. People who think, oh, I can just become an expert in TikTok and therefore I'm a marketer. Well, it's short-sighted. Marketing isn't a tactic. Marketing is about acquiring, retaining, and delighting customers, or it should be. But marketers have to be gritty about what they can and can't change. Mm. Grit is not just about doing something because it has to be done. Grit is about finding something you love and doing it well and making a difference. If marketers are doing marketing because they love it, it's easy to do what they do better, to learn, to grow, to evolve. But it isn't easy to do what you do or what you know needs to be done if an organization is saying no. Sometimes it's not even easy if you're an entrepreneur and you know what needs to be done, but you're too afraid to do it. Part mm. of being truly gritty means being brave enough to do the hard things. And sometimes that means putting the hard work in. Sometimes it means fighting for the thing that you know is the right thing for the business, even if they can't see it themselves. And sometimes it means, ironically, asking for help. You might not be able to do the things that you know need to be done. And sometimes you don't even know what those things are. But if you're able to have an idea that something is wrong, and you're able to say, mm, I don't know how to solve this problem, but somebody probably does. Ripples can expand out into the universe in a way that helps you solve your problems. That's how you and I met. I had determined I wanted to be on more podcasts. Absolutely. I registered for something that someone had suggested to me. You looked like a perfect person to have a conversation with. And et voila, the planets aligned. In a marketing context, people are often able to identify a combination of data, stories, and what happens in their gut to make beautiful campaigns, to help people identify how their problems can be solved. But it requires marketers to be gritty 
in order to continuously mm. improve their craft, to make logical and reasoned and emotional arguments for why they should be able to do that. And ultimately, to be brave enough to say, no, this is not acceptable, and to speak with their feet if they need to. I think marketers mm. are incredibly intelligent. We are incredibly resilient. We are incredibly hardworking. But we're not always very good at being brave. And that's why I champion marketing ah. pride, because I think the two go hand in hand. If we are proud of the work that we do, then we are also hopefully going to be brave enough to say, no, that's not okay. And this is why. I'll share a secret as a board mm. member. Your board doesn't expect you to have every single answer. What they do expect is for you to be able to make a rational, justified argument for why you have chosen that path. So if you're sitting in an organization where you need to make a difference, put that forward, create that framework. And if you don't know how to do it, ask for help. If you're sitting in an organization where you're on your own, imagine that someone at the top was challenging you. Why did you make that decision? What did you do? How did you make that thing work? And then bloody do it. Being an entrepreneur is a privilege and a pleasure, but it is also an incredible responsibility. You're not responsible to a board at the end of the day. You are only responsible to yourself. Some days it's easy yeah. to lose that momentum. But imagine why you're doing this. For an entrepreneur being driven by a sense of purpose, that is the most important thing that you should keep coming back to. And if you are an entrepreneur and you don't have a vision or a sense of purpose or accomplishment, I dare you to go away and think about that. And to think about who could help you achieve that sense of purpose or indeed who could help you find that sense of purpose if you don't have one. Because an, being an entrepreneur is mm. a very long, hard slog. It's not going to happen overnight. You will have moments of doubt. You will have moments of indecision. You will have moments of terror. But it may feel like you're on your own. You're not. Help is always one request away. But you have to make that request. No one else can do it except you. Wow, that's actually very profound. Like... I can totally relate because I started my business journey as well back in just right after I got laid off and I was with my, my wife and we we're talking about all the interviews that I had with the companies. Nothing came through. Like I had almost hundred interviews, actually. It was a, quite, quite a good achievement to land that much, but nothing came through. And I was telling my wife, like, I don't know what to do. Like maybe I could start a business and I did and I'm till now, like I can say that it's not been easy. Like quite thankfully, like I'm really glad that I, I met a person like you, Gina. Like, not only is just like to, to have you on a podcast, but it's actually also a form of help as well. Like you, for you to be part of my podcast, it's kind of like asking for, for us to, to be asking for you for help at the same time. Because not only are you teaching us something new, but for the audiences who's also listening to this podcast, and whether if they're entrepreneurs or people who's looking for a job or maybe looking to start a new job, to, to start up new businesses, they all need help. And so do we. And then I think that's the beauty about the human humanity is, is we share the connection of being able to ask for help and actually, and I think that's what 
if we look at it in the, in the centuries back, that's how people, the, the civilization itself actually lift each other up to, to get to where we are today. So it's really profound that you mentioned that. And I actually have a two questions just to kind of wrap things up. But my, se- my second to last question is actually is, since as a, as a business leader and everything, I know there are a lot of entrepreneurs probably scared of failing. Like every, to be honest, I hate fail too. It kind of breaks the pride. It's, it shames you. It's, it's such a bad feeling sometimes. But like we talked a lot about grit and how marketing and everything. But at the same time, it's also kind of like a personal branding in a way. Because all the failures that you've done and all the lessons that you learn from marketing, all the lessons that you learn from dealing with customers. My question is, what would the advice that you would give to those leaders or any people whose position in a, in a, in a leadership in a, in, a, in a marketing or sales doesn't matter? Obviously, they also fear failures too. And nobody loves to fail. So my question is, what would you give to to the advice to those leaders out there listening to this podcast who's afraid of fail but want to embrace it, what is the tips and tricks that you would give them? And we'd love to hear why as well. It is not our failures that define us. It is our ability to recover from those failures. Success is getting up one more time than you fell down. I know from personal experience that I've learned the most during the times of my life that were the hardest. It's easy to sail through life and do what's expected of you. And it used to be easy to get to the end of the day and get paid for that and go home and watch TV and go to sleep and life just carries on. And the next thing you know, you blink and the only way you know you're older is because your kids are older or your friends' kids are older and and life has passed you by. Challenges give us the opportunity to define who we are. And it is always scary to do something new. My belated father who passed away last year was an eternal optimist and a quirky and wonderfully childlike person in his approach to the world. He always saw the joy and the delight in any experience. And as a young child, he taught me how to ski. And we would travel down the mountainside. This is in Southern Africa. So in Lesotho, where the, the, the ski, the snow may only be four inches deep. And when you fall, you fall on rocks and it hurts. But he said to me, Gina, you don't fall, you don't learn. And no matter what happens in your life, if it's simply easy, you get to the end of it going, so what? I've heard some of the recent generations called the snowflake generation. Why? Because they are mollycoddled. Because if you shine a bright enough light on them, they simply melt because they can't hack it. Why can't they hack it? Because they've never been exposed to failure. If you think about it, if everything you do is wonderful and you're praised all the time, when failure hits you for the first time, it is absolutely devastating. But if you're repeatedly exposed to failure, it is actually like being exposed to immune therapy. If you've ever come across someone who's allergic to a cat, what do they do? They give you tiny little doses of exposure until you build up your resilience, you build up your resistance, until eventually you can be in the same room as a cat. Maybe one day you can even stroke a cat. 
Maybe one day you can even own a cat. (laughs) Failure is a little bit like that. If we don't expose ourselves to the opportunity to fail regularly, we never build, build those failure muscles. There is a wonderful woman, a wonderful quote by, I think it might even have been Nancy Reagan. A woman is like a tea bag. It's not until she's in hot water that you discover how strong she is. Mm. And the same is true for people of any genders. When you're in hot water, you know what you're made of. And even if you have a tendency to failure or crumble under pressure, that's okay. Because it is your ability to go, oh, this is what happened in the circumstance. This is what I learned from the circumstance. This is what I'm going to do differently as a result. So to summarize, if you are a leader who fears failure, do something that you're afraid you'll fail at. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be terrifying. In fact, try exposure therapy first. I am now setting myself a daily goal to do something that I am either afraid of or really, really want to avoid doing. And I have an accountability partner. And every day he and I are texting each other with our goals for the day. Why? Because simply by communicating that to someone else, we are making ourselves more resilient. And he can go to the end of the day and say, did you do that? And I'll feel bad if I didn't. What we're doing is we're building our resilience muscles. Courage, Mm -hmm. like a muscle, is strengthened by use. That was a quote by Ruth Gordon. So if you are afraid of failure, the best thing you can do is put yourself into safe circumstances where failure has a minimal consequence and do it more and more and more often until you're no longer as afraid of failure as you were before. Wow, that's that's really deep. Like it's really amazing. As a millennial growing up in a world of fast pace, like everything is all about finding success and finding success and finding success. And we forget that the formula to success is actually failure. And there's so many people who's actually succeeded in this world. Without failure, they wouldn't be at the place where they are. So it's really cool that you mentioned that quote is actually it's like a compound interest, isn't it? It's all about that failure as yep. an investment, but then it accumulates to where you need to be down the road, which is super profound. And yeah, before we close this episode with Gina, I like to ask you the final questions, which is what is the next step for you, Gina, in your career and in your life? To answer that question, I'm going to refer to a quote, which I will badly mangle, but I'll refer to it anyway. Have you ever come across the poem, it is our light, not our darkness, that most scares us? Marianne Williamson wrote a book called A Journey Into Love. It sounds a bit woo-woo, doesn't it? But the key message across it has been repeated many, many, many times. And here it is. It is our light, not our darkness, that most terrifies us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brave, gorgeous, talented? Actually, who are you not to be? You were born to make manifest the glory that is within you. And it's not just in some of us. It is in all of us. As we give ourselves permission to let our own light shine, we automatically 
give others permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. If you are afraid of something, you need to let your own light shine to be able to overcome that fear. The greatest challenge I'm going through at the moment is to be afraid to let my light shine. And I've spent many years squashing myself into a box so that other people won't feel uncomfortable around me. I'm not doing that anymore. But it does mean that I am having to take a shot of resilience every single time I put out another post that I think people may not respond to. And you know what? They don't always. Sometimes people ignore it. Sometimes it doesn't reach the mark. The challenge is how do you be true to yourself and let your light shine and touch people? This is my journey. This is why I'm talking to you and your audience today. This is why I will continue to inspire audiences around the world. Because we all have an ability to make change happen. My next journey is to be able to make change happen by inspiring more people at scale, by using words in a way that helps people change their lives. That's my journey. Wow, that's really beautiful. <laughs> I wish uh, there was a, a new book coming out from you, Gina. Oh, I can send you some <laughs> poems. <laughs> Those get written regardless of how long they take. Well, actually, oh, that actually sounds good. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Gina, for joining us and spreading out your inspirations and also what does it mean to, to learn from your failure and then actually finding success and why grit actually plays in that huge role of not only just everything that you go through in your life, career and everything, but how grit can actually support you from getting up from, your, from the bottom of your feet to where you are. So it's really great to hear that. So as always, thank you so much for listening to Supercharge with Digital Marketer. If you enjoyed this show, please follow or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to come back in, in two weeks for a, a next episode. Until then, this is Kazuki. And don't forget, don't stop and keep believing. See you next time.